Welcome to Pharma Talk Radio. I'm Kate Woda, producer of the show. Pharma Talk Radio is a nonprofit program to disseminate helpful information to those in life sciences, and in particular drug development. And this, of course, always includes patient advocacy communities. When I am not working with Pharma Talk Radio, I head up content and direction for Immuno Oncology 360 and Rational Combinations 360 at the Conference Forum. For more information on these events, please visit www.theconferenceforum.org. Today's podcast is a recording from the 5th Annual IO360 2018 event on the future value generation in IO, which was led by Dr. Axel Hoos, Senior Vice President of Oncology R&D for GSK. Dr. Hoos was joined by expert analyst Dr. Andrew Baum, Head of Global Healthcare and Managing Director of Equity Research for City, along with Dr. David Grazel, partner of Atlas Venture, Dr. Simeon George, partner of SR1, and Mark Simon, partner of Terea Partners. Okay, I hope you had a good lunch and uh, attention can return back to the room. Uh, I'd like to ask the panelists to please come on stage so we can begin this uh, conversation. And uh, we'll do introductions in a moment. But what we have aimed to do here with this panel is to get an investor perspective, a broader investor perspective for the I.O. space uh, and offer that to you for dialogue. So, you know, yes, we will have a conversation between uh, the panelists, but we will also, throughout the hour that we have together, open this up for questions from the audience. So feel free to, you know, throw stuff at us and we will do the best we can uh, to answer those questions. And again, all of this is, these are forward-looking opinions, you know, so nobody has a crystal ball, but we're trying to give you a position for people that are really doing this all day uh, to offer a new perspective. So with that stated, I would say we'll get started with introductions, and uh, and we'll start on uh, the left side of the stage with Dave, and then go around. Dave Grizel, I'm a partner at Atlas Venture. Uh, Mark Simon, co-founder of Terea Partners. Hi, I'm Simeon George. I'm a partner with SR1. Andrew Baum, I'm uh, head of global healthcare for Citigroup. Okay, so as you can see, it's a diverse group. And what I'm going to do now is to get us started. Ask, pose a question to the panel and uh, get a perspective on that question. And then, you know... We'll go through other more specific questions as we go. So as Andrew has introduced us uh, to the importance of the year 2017, a lot happened in this year, and it set us up for actually even further exploration and growth in the I.O. space. So my question to the panel as an introduction is, what is your perspective on the most important event or trend that came from last year that will carry us forward and shape uh, the I.O. space. And always from the perspective of, as we titled the panel, value generation in I.O. So what's the trend that you personally think has carried the most weight from last year? And, you know, anywhere you want to start. I was going to say the great data with MSI and the FDA approval was really a revolutionary change at the FDA. We no longer care about tumor origin, and I think the fact that uh, wherever the MSI was present, the FDA approved it, 
I think is a real major change and bodes well. We have to find new MSI stratifications in 2018, but I think that's a very important milestone. Okay, then let me ask you uh, a follow-on to that, just to round this out. Uh, obviously, that approval, very important, is a landmark. It's a first of its kind. I actually had thought it would come with precision medicine. Now it came with I.O. Uh, it was a retrospective approval. If you think about it, you know, the MSI high uh, story was already out there. And then it came with very small patient numbers as a bundled retrospective approval. Nothing wrong with it, but it's, you know, it raised the question, how do you see this going forward? What will the community now do with this precedent to really leverage it? No, that's, that's the big question. But I just think that it now gives people another way of approaching this area that they weren't sure before. And the fact it shows Dr. Gottlieb, the FDA commissioner, is willing to think outside the box. So it also illustrates the FDA being very forward-looking. And obviously, with the MSI approval, we finally now have prostate cancer patients and colon cancer patients who have access to checkpoints. Excellent. Yeah. So, Dave? Sure. I think maybe I will um, add to that, because I think there are so many that are important, uh, would be the CAR-T approval, mostly because I think the commitment to actually driving those products to market was something that had been questioned for some time and had been some doubt in people's minds whether the large pharmaceutical organizations would really commit. We're seeing a tidal wave of that now. Um, and I think it's also emblematic of that commitment early. So most of this work was really done and dr driven forward in the clinic by academic medical centers. Frankly, the venture capitalists were mostly on the sideline for that tremendous innovation. And it was really the wherewithal of pharma, sort of the Novartis Penn collaboration being, you know, form Frust, to be able to commit, to drive, to approval, to industrialize the CMC manufacturing challenges, and then to think through a global commercialization regulatory plan that, you know, frankly seemed pretty daunting even to early stage life science venture investors at, at that moment. We weren't jumping in, you know, during the uh, extremely dark times, you know, after some untoward deaths at Penn that, that caused the whole field to hibernate for almost 10 years. So I think it's just a remarkable accomplishment. And while we may have all seen it coming, um, I, I think it, it has connotations that go back many, many years. Uh, and so the fruition of all that effort is, is pretty compelling. Opens a big door. Yes, clearly. Simeon, would you like to add? Yeah, so, you know, I guess we've heard sort of the glass half full perspective. I think as an early stage investor, you know, the title of this panel is future value. And, you know, the glass half empty view, I would say, or part where I think we need to be really thoughtful given, you know, what you described in terms of the approvals, given what you described in terms of, you know, next generation transformative therapies. The question is, like, where do you go from here? And as early stage investors, how do you create differentiation based on what we're seeing at the later stage of development into, uh, into market approval? And I think there, it's frankly a lot harder because, A, I think Dave did a nice job of illustrating this in the presentation before, you know, beyond the first sets of targets that people are rightly so very excited about, it's unclear, at least I mean, based on where I sit, to know what are the next set of really meaningful targets where we're going to see the sort of you know, data that we've seen behind CD19 or behind the checkpoints, et cetera. Right? So it's a question of how do you pick the winner sitting at the early stage? And then what makes it even more complex is, you know, just given the number of trials that are ongoing as you think through combination therapies, how does what you're working on fit into either what's approved 
what's in late stage development, and again, coming back to the, the differentiation piece, how quickly can you identify the right set of patients where you can show some hint of efficacy and activity to hopefully get to where those, those other therapies are, right? So I think that's the piece that now, as we, you know, we're in 2018 and moving forward, that's the piece that I think you know, I'm spending a lot of time thinking through. So it's never a good idea to be the last person to speak on a panel. Um, but in addition to, I guess, the points that have been made, um, I alluded to the CMS uh, and FDA combined decision to provide reimbursement uh, for the uh, MSK Impact and Foundation One because it has very significant commercial implications. And once you have a test out there in which different assays can be put, it's very easy to see the scalability of the phenomenon which you've opened the door to. So it's an enabling mechanism. Um, the other thing I think that will become and start to get increasing airtime is the additional biomarkers that I alluded to. And I mentioned the loss of heterozygosity, and that was published just within Axel's time window. So those would be my two highlights. Excellent. Okay, so then I will actually not make you the last on this question and uh, add my own perspective. Uh, you know, we have set a trend a few years ago that combination therapy will be the thing in I.O., and so far, it seems like that's going to be true, but we haven't fully leveraged that yet. There's a huge amount of effort going on, and initially it needed to ramp up. We have started seeing some data readouts over the course of last year that were actually quite important, and that surprised a few people, and I think they're relevant for you know, the way this investigation will go in the next several years. So we have seen that the previously assumed to be the winner, IO-IO combos, haven't yet played out to the level that people had hoped. And what we have seen is that actually chemo combos do work better than expected. And also I see some targeted therapy combos uh, at the horizon that could actually work better than expected. So in my mind, if I simplify what I can read out of this, there is a cell kill that comes from the targeted therapy or chemotherapy that primes the immune system that can then be modified by an immunotherapy approach. That's a, it is a simplistic view, but these two modalities seem to still work together reasonably well, and they have a place. So that's an important lesson from last year, and that will carry us forward because, obviously, the industry needs to get medicines out to patients, and they would like to look at the short term. This is something that will inform the short term uh, very significantly. So having said that, I switch gears and I ask a few individual questions uh, to some of you. So I go uh, to a question around non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, we heard from Andrew in his introduction earlier that um, you know, non-small cell lung cancer is the large indication that carries a lot of value. And for many people, it's a binary thing. Either you have something there, you don't, and the rest doesn't matter that much. It's obviously not true, and we will carry value into other indications. So my question, uh, uh, and I actually asked this to you, Andrew, uh, where do you see this go beyond lung cancer? What's next? And how do we get there? Um, the question relates to immunotherapy in, in general, right? So uh, there's obviously a, an ever-expanding range of um, indications. Um, and I think ultimately immunotherapy is going to have a role in the vast majority of solid tumors and maybe a slightly lower percentage of the, the, the liquid tumors, but it is clearly going to become, um, I wouldn't just say a dominant backbone, I'd even go as far as say the dominant backbone. Um, there are 
a number of questions, which is, number one, um, how do you improve outcomes in patients who do have responses? And there are no shortages of potential avenues to explore, and you've mentioned some traditional approaches such as chemo, and you could throw in radiotherapy in within that, and then you have all the wonderful new additional targets on top of that. But then there's the, you know, the big opportunity, which the patients who do not have responses and the so-called cold tumors and there, there's a whole a different spectrum of possibilities, and I call them synthetic, um, I think synthetic cell construct or synthetic biology, basically trying to capture um, using an artificial TCR through a bispecific or um, through a cell therapy or through a new antigen vaccine. So I think that's, you know, those are the real challenges, but ultimately I think it will be the central backbone and we will fit other things around it in order to deliver the best outcome for patients. Okay, is any one of you interested in adding to this? I guess if you look at Jim Allison, who won the Lasker Prize two years ago, when he was at Berkeley, uh, he had gotten financing from the Prostate Cancer Foundation. And prostate cancer has been an ice-cold tumor to date. But there are some combination studies, I'm hoping in 2018 and 2019, that read out where maybe we can make this ice-cold tumor a little bit hotter. Yeah, and if I may add a comment to that, the ice cold tumor is actually not in um, inert to immunotherapy approaches. We already know the answer to that because there have been trials that showed positive data. They have not yet led to an approval. And for, there's a variety of reasons which are more technical in nature than they're actually scientific. And uh, I think there is room here in prostate cancer to actually provide immunotherapy benefit. Absolutely. Maybe make one orthogonal comment and sort of related to Andrew's anecdote about the uh, clinical interaction, um, there's still a tremendous infrastructure barrier to this, right? So I think back to 2004, 2005, running trials with Tom Lynch when he was at uh, MGH, you know, and Tom would say, I don't run an EGFR mutation clinic. We're still diagnosing things anatomically in patients, which is sort of ludicrous. But, you know, to get out of ultimately how we think about improving non-small cell lung cancer, there will be a time, I don't know when it will happen, probably decades plus, when we'll start thinking about the molecular pathophysiology as much as we think about anatomic localization. And I think that will open on the heels of MSI and TMB and things I'm sure we'll talk about in more detail. But there is a real infrastructure challenge in how patients get processed and put through to understand where we're going to benefit, um, you know, with additional diagnostics in, in subsets of non-small cell lung cancer. Um, it, it may be an orthogonal way of thinking just to cut across molecular diagnoses and you know certainly we don't invest in those things but they're going to be critical to the success of getting out of you know some of the challenges in developing in non-small cell okay any other thoughts all right then i move to the next question uh, which is about precision medicine so if you think about it we've spent a long time developing precision medicines, that was a big story. And uh, some people thought uh, that's actually the cure for cancer. Individualized, specific precision medicines for specific patients. That hasn't played out to the degree we would have liked. But there is a lot of things we have learned from it, which I'm beginning to see to project into the I.O. space as it evolves. So with that said, uh, you know, where do you see the lessons from precision medicine actually carry into I.O.? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think there's a lot, again, sometimes it's, it's actually beneficial to bring orthogonal thought or learnings from other areas where, again, there is, I think, a history and, you know, um, lots of both successes and failures to sort of point to. I mean, I, when I think about 
precision medicine right now. I mean, we've been recently involved in investing in a company that's looking at some of these um, targeted cancer therapy approaches. And again, companies like Loxo, Ignite, and others, I think, have re sort of recaptured the imagination around how efficiently you can develop a drug, again, going after the particular signature, this case primarily in non-small cell, but I guess to, to Mark's uh, earlier point, also now receptivity from the regulatory bodies to be able to expand across tissue pathology so that even though you might only be dealing with, I don't know what the number is, two to 5,000 number of patients with a TREK mutation, if you have a molecule that is selective for that particular mutation, if you're able to show in, frankly, you know, a small subset of patients that this is working meaningfully, you get receptivity, I think, from regulators. You have investors, pharma companies clearly showing that uh, this is something that's highly valuable. And in a very short turnaround period, you can create critical mass and you can get potentially a product. I think we'll see, you know, approvals coming uh, shortly thereafter uh, from, you know, both of these companies and the others that are so, sort of following in those, in those lines. And I think a lot of that methodology can also be applied, hopefully, in I.O. And I think, you know, frankly, there's also going to be a resurgence of just in the precision medicine field, other, other mutations, again, where we can, you know, understand the selectivity to particular tumor types and then have a broad set of histology to look at. And again, then, the, then it's, you know, a med chem exercise of can you drug it? How do you, you know, make sure that you have selectivity, potency, all of those things. But, you know, I think there's are, there are a lot of learnings there. And it's, it's actually, I mean, it's, it's nice to see other fields, not just, frankly, I.O., getting momentum behind it. And again, from the early stage perspective, it gives us another, another area to be able to place bets. You know, just a devil's advocate, you know, the word precision, you know, laser beam focused. Yet, if you talk to physicians who give the CAR-T and the IO therapies, they're actually pretty blunt instruments in terms of what happens to the immune system, the CNS toxicities. So the idea that we have these molecularly targeted fine-tuning you know, of the immune system, you know, as, you know, you give steroids, tocolizumab, you know, so the idea that the checkpoints, you know, are these very narrowly defined, we know exactly what's going on with the T cells and the M2, M1 macrophages and the TME, I just take a pause and just say, you know, do we really know what's, you know, what's going on, you know, in the tumor milieu? And there's a very blunt side of IO. So, so one area that I guess hasn't been raised that is a learning, for me at least, um, from uh, small molecule um, is uh, the timing of application of these drugs. And if we take CML, for example, um, it's very clear that your probability of success of treating CML in accelerated advance phase is really very poor, even with the best TKI. Whereas, obviously, if you treat it um, before you get to that point, you effectively have normal lifespans. And although we don't have yet have data from an evolutionary biology point of view from clonality, it makes a lot of sense. The earlier we go, the earlier we detect, the better outcomes I suspect that we're going to have, even though the data isn't there. Any other comments on this? Yeah, so you know, from my perspective, the precision medicine lesson is a very big one. And uh, you're right, the precision it doesn't always lie just in targeting the receptor or the target that you're going after with your therapy. It depends on the downstream events. They can be quite broad. You know, uh, and IO is such a broad spectrum of different things. It's, a, it's an area in itself, right? A therapeutic area in itself, uh, even though we don't call it that. And um, 
what I see is there are some very focused, laser-focused versions of I.O., and there are some broader versions of I.O. The CAR-Ts, even though, yes, they have cytokine release and other things, but they are focused. And if you focus them on the right target, and the target is expressed only in the tumor, you get the desired result. So that's precision medicine it's at its finest, using that definition. The other aspect that I see of precision medicine, it goes towards you know, biomarkers, patient selection, because you can select for things that are not necessarily targeted by your therapy, but that will be relevant for the effect of your therapy. And that is a, actually a critical lesson from precision medicine and you know, building assays around identifying patients using such targets or markers is critical and we have learned a ton. The whole companion diagnostic concept comes from precision medicine and we're now using it in IO. So uh, that is, I use this as a segue to the next question, which is about biomarkers. Which biomarker, and I know Andrew has an opinion he has already provided it, so I'm not going to ask you, uh, which is the next thing that will follow PDL1? And as we're not just seeing TMB is coming, what, what do you think is the next thing that will guide the field towards patient selection? Dave, if you want to start. Can I give the one word answer? No, so I, I think we're just at the beginning. So I think as we look at MSI, TMB, are we you know, 10 per megabase, 20, what are those cutoffs going to be? We're watching this evolve in real time, and we'll have real implications. And the challenge will be sorting that out in the context of, and I think back to the precision question just before, um, you know, sort of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle put in play in, in real clinical development where you're trying to get biopsies from patients so you can figure out the expression of a marker, and it turns out that intervention may have changed the outcome of a trial, whether patients get fresh tumor, whether you're using bank tumor. So I think having ourselves oriented to, there's not a, an answer per se, it will be TMB, MSI, PDL one We're going to sort all of those out. There will be overlap. It's unlikely to be as direct as HER2 expression. And at the same time, as we're perturbing the system to uncover that, there may be many other things that we discover along the way. We can't be sort of closed-minded about it. Um, one of the things that sort of I learned in some uh, discussions I had with John Weary was just also about the time course of the expression of these things. And so as we get more sophisticated about our interventions and how we're thinking about whether it's checkpoint or uh, other tumor cells with the tumor microenvironment, thinking about the dynamic expression of these biomarkers is also going to be critical. Yes, and I'm, you know, I'm looking towards uh, early alignment of the community around how to measure those new biomarkers so we don't repeat the PDL1 companion diagnostic story. Uh, it has propelled the field forward, yes, but it has also introduced a lot of complexities that we could have avoided without taking value away from any of the players. So I think we just need to do this better using a standardized way of measuring TMB as it becomes a standard and then do the same for other stuff. So I just think that's a great point. And it's a real opportunity for leadership in the pharma industry and in FDA in various hospitals, NIH, to really provide a definitive explanation of how these will be interpreted, what the standards will be, what a CLIA certified lab will look like in these arenas. And so hopefully it will be a pre-competitive consortium. They'll be able to do that. But it's, it's a great point, Axel. And of course, reimbursement, as Andrew said. Finally, we have some reimbursement, you know, white smoke, because that has also hobbled the field a bit. White smoke, yes. We will have a lot more white smoke. Um, good. Any other comments on biomarkers? 
Okay, so then uh, I will ask one more question and I will come to the audience. So you can uh, all start preparing your questions down there. Uh, the question is about modalities. Uh, obviously, I.O. started with monoclonal antibodies being the first wave of modality that had, had an impact, PD-1, CTLF-4 blocking antibodies. That's just one category. We have so many other opportunities here now, from vaccines to oncolytic viruses to bispecific or multispecific antibodies. Cell therapy has proven itself in one iteration. There are many other iterations possible. So many of these things have been incubating in the discovery space for a while. They're beginning to surface. Stuff has gone into the clinic. It's time to make a prediction what's next and tell us a bit about, you know, what do you think is a valuable next modality that could become important? What do you see as a trend around modalities? You can frame this anywhere you see fit. So, Simin? Yeah, I mean, again, certainly as an early-stage investor, we spend a lot of time and place a lot of bets on these early-stage modalities that hopefully can have multiple use cases, you know. So I think there... Um, and it depends on, frankly, what, what is the problem you're, you're trying to solve. I think you alluded to some of this, Axel, but, you know, obviously, if we, if we take CAR-T and start there and you think about how do we move beyond, you know, the data on CD19, you say BCMA is the next target that uh, looks like it looks compelling. How do we go from there to solid tumors? So there's a question on are there novel targets that we need to unlock somehow? Is there an insight? And, again, there's a lot of interest from modalities that are focused on neoantigen discovery, right, as being one of the bottlenecks. You know, we also think very carefully about cell type, right? So I think earlier today, Dario Campania spoke, and obviously he's, he's been one of the uh, leaders with respect to engineered T cells, but he's also been working on engineered NK cells. And you can imagine whether it's on the adaptive side or on the innate side, figuring out other ways to try and expand selectively a particular cell type and then figure out whether you need to engineer it or not, and then how do you potentially combine that with, again, the, uh, the work that's happening on the engineered T-cell side. I think that's an area, again, where there's uh, you know, a lot of interesting early data that's starting to, to come together. Uh, and then I would say, as, as we think through you know, potentially supply chain, potentially also just the way that we move cell-based therapies forward as we look at gene editing as a tool that can allow you with some level of ease and fluency to do multiplexing, to think about creating an off-the-shelf CAR-T or cell-based therapy. Um, you know, I think that's, again, hopefully the next iteration of how we can advance the field forward. So those are at least three areas that I would highlight as areas that we're spending a lot of time on have made investments in. You know, in terms of older technologies, we now have second-generation IPIs. We had some good data on IPI a few days ago. Um, on TVEC, you know, people wrote off that area. Now there's second, third, fourth, fifth generations. So some of the older, more primitive technologies have new iterations. As Andrew said, with IL-2, uh, on the market now for 35 years, there is now one lead molecule, but there's 12 other IL-2 mutines floating around. So sometimes the old stuff, new generations, can look quite interesting. Yeah, you know, we have learned that Biology doesn't change that quickly. It's just us not being able to manage how to use it. And IL-2 is probably a prime example for that. We know it matters. We've tried early with high-dose IL-2 in a very crude way. That didn't fly. That hasn't altered the biology, though. We just have to find out how to use it. And it will apply to a variety of other targets. And that opens the door, actually, to the for some time hesitantly observed uh, cytokine space. Cytokines are very complex. They do a hundred things. 
But, you know, if you can make that work, it opens an, a whole other door. And that is a new modality again. And if I think about our pipeline, what I'm most excited about on the modality front are opportunities to widen the TI and access that biology, right? So whether you're masking IL-2, whether you're our, our sort of invest replimune, next generation oncolytic viruses, you take the TVEC team, they have a decade and a half of insights now about how to do that better. I think improving CAR-T on the tolerability side, whether that's with sort of the remote control small molecule manipulation of cell therapy, or whether it's you know, one of Dario's companies, Unum, whether you're looking at antibody coupled T cell receptors, all these next gen versions are novel modalities, but they're really playing on, they're standing on the shoulders of some biology that have been well studied, hundreds of millions of dollars have been plowed into it, but failed to be completely exploited. I think you have to do that in complement to the, the novel biology. Other thoughts on, on that topic? Modalities. I mean, I put the top 10 list out there, and you, you commented on the, I put IL-2 as the top. I mean, just mentioning another modality that um, doesn't get much airtime, but actually the data looks really very supportive, and that's radiotherapy. Um, the issue is, of course, that sponsors don't make much money from radiotherapy, and if there is a drug that does it, you'll have sponsorship backing it. But frankly, from a, a scientific point of view, there may be some avenues where this may be the ultimate direction of of going and so we'll see it may get capital as the area of last resort but it's one that ultimately may be potentially transformative and to that point talking about ecosystem again the cost is still there radiotherapy is not cheap it's got to be paid for it won't be necessarily a pharma scenario but it is a healthcare scenario that's really important and if you can leverage it it's a fully established uh, modality we should at least explore it Absolutely. Other thoughts? Okay. So then uh, I will now turn to the audience and offer you the word to ask a few questions to the panel. You can go basically in any direction. This is a unique group of people that you don't get on stage that easily. So please feel free uh, to raise a few questions. Um, just uh, um, Andrew, looking at your list of top ten, um, more looking from what's missing there that is pretty hotly discussed, like uh, Team Three, Lag Three, Ox Forty, all those kind of. Uh, what do you? What, what's your thought on those? And maybe Axel and others can also add on to that. So um, the co-stimulatory agonists um, to date, before. IL-2, this is the recent tranche, so I'm, I'm you know, just giving the last few years. Um, it doesn't look so good right now. I mean, as you know, the Genentech OX40 was terminated. Um, Bristol's CD137 has a very narrow therapeutic window. Pfizer looks like they're killing theirs, and so on and so forth. Um, the um, other checkpoints, such as TIM3, LAG3, we've seen some interesting data from Bristol and subgroup of patients of LAG3. I mean, it's definitely interesting. Uh, TIM3, I think it's a little bit too early in order to make a call. Um, so I'm interested, but if I'm looking for a really big lever that makes me you know, sit up, and the IL-2 data, although it's limited in scope, the fact that it's a validated target and the fact that data is pretty compelling maybe pay attention in a way that I didn't when I saw the Bristol Lag 3 data. So um, 
uh, for that point of view, I'm, I'm, that's why they probably didn't make them in the top ten list. If you, you have anything to add? Sure. I mean, these are opinions at this stage. Uh, but the critical thing is that we're talking about very highly conserved biology here, biology that we understand. We're not having a random mutation in the tumor, and we don't know what it means to target that. We're talking about an immune system that has evolved over a very long period of time and keeps conserved mechanisms that we know are important. We just need to figure out how to manipulate those so we have a real clinical success story. So, uh, and to make the point very clear, it took 11 years for CTLA-4 to be a success, and look what happened afterwards. It blew this entire field into the size that it is now. It enabled many other things. For PD-1, we were lucky, I would say. It just came out right away, uh, and that's a unique mechanism. I don't think that all other mechanisms will be as easy. And the interesting thing is, if we would have started PD-1 in colon cancer, and that's all we're looking at, we would not be where we are today. There was basically nothing there until TMB came along or MSI came along to actually focus it. And I'm pretty sure that with highly conserved mechanisms that influence immune responses that potently, like agonist targets do, that there is a way to use them in the clinic. So we just need to give this the investigation it needs, and whoever breaks the tide on this will have a very big success in I.O. That's my position around it. Of course, the proof is in the pudding. The data will tell the story, and we just have to do the smart investigation. Dosing as high as possible, like we do with oncology programs often, or looking broadly at all comers and drawing your conclusions from that may not be the answer. Other so, thoughts on this? I, I, I have a question. <clears throat> Take this in an entirely different direction. So those of us who've been doing this for a while have seen all of this happen before in the CNS area, right? In the 90s, 2000s, uh, amine hypothesis, antidepressants, amyloid hypothesis, Alzheimer's, people got rich, uh, thought leaders made a lot of money, uh, adaptive designs started to come into play and innovation, and then it all sort of stopped at this point, more or less. We saw it on your slide. So right now, we're in the throes in I.O. of the same kind of activity. So are there lessons learned from prior therapeutic experiences that can be applied in the I.O. area from an investment perspective? Maybe I'll start. I'm not sure I would draw those conclusions from that slide set, right? I think the, the real thrust of that is there's a lot more work to be done. There are tremendous breakthroughs in SSRI therapy. I mean, it's an alleviation of the burden of disease on a tremendous millions of patients, right? And similarly, cardiovascular disease re reduced mortality dramatically. We're now with up to TIMI 67 or whatever we're studying these days. But the opportunity for incremental improvement when your mortality rates have dropped, I mean, aspirin, beta blocker, ACE inhibitor, you know, TPA interventions, PCI, et cetera. So I wouldn't say that those things were then somehow wasted or we didn't get the benefit of them. Um, but I do think, to, to Axel's point, it's really, it's a long road. And I think our appetite for immediate gratification on the clinical trial, you know, it's one of the reasons the Nectar data captivated everybody. Mm -hmm. It was so compelling. It was really clear. It was playing on, you know, biology that we all knew and understood. You know, and I wouldn't, to come back to the last question, I wouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater as far as 41BB or CD40. I think we need the right tools there. Mm -hmm. And so the question becomes, how do you activate those pathways with local pharmacology, which I think will end up being a key component here to navigate the TI. So if anything, um, I hope the, the question around 
um, you know, particularly in neuroscience, let's take those lessons learned and then apply them. It still remains to be seen whether aducanumab will do something that solanezumab could not, but that we don't ignore the data sets from the past. We share that knowledge and try to improve upon it. You know, that's, that's what I think will be the legacy of some of these things. Alzheimer's isn't going away. We're going to need to have interventions there. We're going to need to have benefit there, unless it's a cancer conference. But I think to your question, I would say the issue with neuroscience for the longest period of time was, as Lou Cantley says, you know, the problem with neuroscience research is that neurologists are fixated on the neuron. And I think for a long time in cancer research, oncologists were fixated on the cancer cell. It turns out to be the immune system that will provide the insight. So I think in some ways we are learning those lessons and we are applying them. And I would just add, you know, I think, frankly, there are a lot of lessons learned um, within oncology and how we've modulated the immune system that will now be applied in CNS. And I think we're starting to see that, at least on the early stage side, with a number of really interesting approaches, again, to kind of system systematically look at the immune system and the way it modulates neurodegeneration specifically and you know, novel targets, novel mechanisms. Still a lot of work has to be done with respect to validation. And again, there, I think the translatability of some of these models has historically been a challenge. But, you know, I would, I guess, to the question, I would say, honestly, I think we need to take some of those learnings and now more broadly apply those because, again, I think the immune system will turn out to be probably the key to a number of diseases beyond just oncology. I also think we're learning lessons a lot more rapidly versus other fields. So, for example, there are quite a number of combinations three, four years ago where, let's say, the biology wasn't really well elucidated. It was, I don't want to call it random, but there was a lot of combinations put together with not a lot of biology and not a lot of good science. And some of those have died quietly, some you don't hear about. But obviously, if a trial does not report out or there's really no news on it, one can assume it kind of quietly you know, passed on. But I think we're now designing the combinations a lot better. And I think that learning is happening at a very rapid pace. So you know, failure and what goes wrong gets out very quickly. You know, one of the problems in the Alzheimer's space is all these same companies did not share, for example, all their databases on the phase three failures. So a lot of them drilled the same dry wells. The hope here is with more transparency, clinicaltrials.gov, you have to publish more data, uh, present more data, that the transparency will allow us to make sure that we do not drill the same dry wells. And, you know, if I sum that up, and we come to the next questions in a moment, uh, there's one statement that I always like to make, which is I always a little bit of a bubble like everything that's as, as exciting as this goes a little bit beyond where it should be, but it's a bubble with a solid core. Uh, there's, there's a lot of substance to that bubble. If you pop it, there's still a lot left. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that's a, a very big differentiator for many of these other um, bubble scenarios we have experienced previously. I wanted to see if we could uh, get a discussion going about um, other adjunctive therapies in, in I.O., uh, not, you know, outside the co-stim space. Um, you, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, uh, Nectar's um, IL-2 agonist, and clearly that stood out at Sitsi last year above, above a cloud of other adjunctive therapies that ran everything from, you know, um, Antinostat and TLR agonists and adenosine agonists, some of the next targets are on Andrew's uh, chart and some are not, but, you know, there are a lot of companies that are trying to piggyback onto PD-1 or CTLA-4 um, and not giving very clear readouts to investors. It's sort of provocative data, but n not enough to move the needle. So I'm just wondering what the view is of, you know, what is a company that's developing an adjunctive therapy 
in I.O. have to prove to investors to really, you know, uh, as Andrew said, provide a big lever because there, there aren't that many. There are a lot of little levers out there and, and not a lot of big ones. Maybe I take the first shot. Look, I think that's a great point. I mean, um, and sitting in my seat, there's nothing more frustrating than a single arm trial um, with two combination therapies, one of which is active, one of which is unknown. You get a response rate in a group of refractory patients. And to determine how much additional benefit that second agent is giving is really very, very challenging. Um, and you know, it, it's unsatisfactory, but of course, the sponsor may have additional reasons such as looking at tolerability of co-administration, which is why he's doing it, or they may have a sense of other biomarkers that they're looking for that in their eyes add value to give conviction that there is a rationale for taking it forward into a, a randomized clinical trial. But it, it's a very real problem and it makes you know, my job difficult. I mean, there's not much more to say. Yeah, because I mean, a lot of feedback that I get, and I don't know if you get it when, when you see something like that, it's whether it's in the noise, you know, it, yeah, oh yes, it's better than historic, but is it really in the noise of the signal? Uh, is the signal actually drowning out, uh, getting drowned out because you're in the, the variability of, of response? Is the pseudo-progression play a role in, in what they're seeing rather than a real effect? Yes. Pseudo-progression is, I mean, Axel, you, you know, given your clinical background, my impression is pseudo-progression is relatively rare in particularly in non-small cell. Um, maybe more common in, in melanoma, but that doesn't seem to be so much of a confounding factor. Yeah, it exists as a phenomenon. It's less common than we had initially anticipated, but uh, it's not the only phenomenon that really is different than the conventional type of uh, response that you see with chemotherapy or targeted therapies. There's all kinds of mixed bag of types of responses that when you bundle them, actually amount to a good number of, uh, you know, patients with benefit that would normally not recognize as benefiters. And we have seen, and I know I'm digressing now, but I just have to say it anyways, um, we have seen trends with most of the immunotherapies that we've studied, including, of course, the PD-1 with this enormous data set that was produced across different companies, that survival is the endpoint where most of the benefit is, is visualized. We have had challenges with PFS in a variety of trials, not in all trials, but in several trials. And part of that challenge for PFS, which will become more and more of an important endpoint as survival moves out, and we just can't follow patients anymore for that long, or we can't uh, you know, uh, stop interference with other therapies that are given post-progression. PFS will be more and more important, and we do have to sort out how do we add in all the... Uh, patterns of benefit that ultimately should factor into progression-free survival. If we solve that, we'll help the entire field because many of the new therapies will produce all kinds of new stuff that cannot be classified without a new system. Mm -hmm. And we have seen five new systems being proposed so far, mm -hmm. right, from iResist to IMResist to IR uh, response criteria to iResist and whatever they're called. Their bottom line, they follow similar ideas but they all have nuances that are different, and they all come from real data. So I expect if we solve the PFS issue and we characterize the patterns of benefit, you will advance the field. I have a question for Andrew. On the IL-2 nectar, when you peel away the onion, how many patients is the excitement based on? And it's justified, but I'm just curious for the number. Um, 
So I have to be a little bit careful from a legal point of view because um, we do not cover Nectar. So I do not have a view on the company, just hasten to add. Um, I mean, so it was looking at the, you know, single-digit number yeah, of non-small like, cell It was like seven in, in, in non-small cell, but I think it was more the proportion right. of uh, responses rather than the actual number that it was based the deepening on. Deepening of the responses. Right. But the point is it's a small number of patients. Yes. I would just say it's a small number of patients in, a where, in an area of very well-trodden and understood biology. So I think it's different than if you had seven patients, you're showing your best lag three data. As the saying goes, you know, the plural of anecdote is not data. But I think here with seven patients, you get a very different perspective on the benefit. Yeah, so in the absence of us doing definitive trials, the signals that we're looking for in less definitive trials need to just be larger in order to be, you know, believable. And either you have something where nothing works in a setting where a signal really means something, or you need to find other differentiators. It's otherwise very hard. We have seen more failures than successes by looking at undifferentiable data sets. Hello, my name is Akash. I'm with Defined Health. My question is around uh, market access and some of these new modalities, particularly uh, bispecifics or bifunctional. Um, anybody's. Um, how do you view the pricing of these given that, uh, for example, uh, if, if you look at a PD-1, CTLA-4 combination, uh, individually they're, they're priced at six figures. Do you think uh, a bispecific that might be able to address, or a bifunctional that might be able to address both issues could be priced, do you think it'll be priced that, that uh, the combination of the two, or will it be a discount, and how will that impact um, kind of these, these classes uh, moving forward? Okay, so uh, all of our answers will be speculations. Yes, uh, but yeah, we're invited that. to speculate. So uh, I can start, but please chime in. So it depends a bit on the player who will have one of those to actually market first, uh, depending on how we will play this and the timing. That means at what time in the debate around changing healthcare pricing or oncology drug pricing is this thing happening? So if I look at myself and the company I work for, we would likely and I can only say likely, uh, price this like one medicine. Price it differently because it differentiates from a cost of goods perspective making it. It is one medicine. It's not two medicines. And uh, then it becomes a matter of value proposition. So you pay for value. And uh, I can see that payers are much more open to pay a higher price if there is a lot of value. And if you have a combination that offers the benefit of a combination, over a monotherapy in one molecule, and you can price it as basically one molecule with a small premium, I think everybody benefits. Uh, but it, this all depends, right, on context and when we forget that first and who is doing it and what's the environment going to be like at that time. But I think we need to push the envelope on this to make drug pricing more manageable. So, so maybe I'll make a comment. It's slightly adjacent to the market question, which is to point out that in the instance that you gave with CTLA-4 and PD-1, a bispecific would have caused a great many problems in the ability to disaggregate dose and schedule and toxicity. And so if you look at the benefit of having two agents and being able to optimize around tolerability, I think it's a, there's a very clear lesson learned there, number one, around schedule, which is very underexplored, I think, as we're beginning to add many new novel agents and novel modalities. That's the sort of third axis when you think about combinations and in which patient populations and diseases, then how are you going to schedule administration? But the ability to distinguish 
tolerability and toxicity from one agent versus the other and how to then ameliorate that and optimize the schedule for efficacy. The, you know, very, very skeptical about you know, bispecifics being able to do that where you're still learning about the biology. So I would say that managed care is going to become more, much more ruthless in terms of looking at these. So in the end, I think we're going to have a lot more of these pay-for-performance, value-based contracts. So I think it will fundamentally come down to the data. I don't believe that managed care is going to pay a big premium for convenience. So one more question from the audience, and then we'll revert back to the panel, because we're now starting to run out of time. So um, there's been a lot of discussion about the science and the clinical advances and regulatory advances, but um, all you guys are on the finance side. And I was wondering if you could speak a little more about capital and finance. So for example, uh, is 2018 in fact a good year to be, that we can expect to see lots of um, finance coming in both from VC and in publicly traded companies. Um, when you've got a thousand some odd different clinical trials out there, does everybody just kind of wait and see how all of that reads out? Uh, and in addition, particularly on the early side, what would really differentiate something and make you think that it was worth investing in? So, you know, I would say certainly on the early stage side, it continues to be a really robust environment in terms of accessing capital. Again, I think Dave did a nice job of putting up um, the data there. In terms of the number of companies, it's roughly the same, but in terms of if you look at the financing rounds for these companies, frankly, from Series A uh, through, these are usually larger rounds, so more money is piling in, hopefully to hit meaningful milestones with each of those financing rounds. <clears throat> and certainly, you know, there are areas right now where it's, it's very um, easy to raise capital if you have the right buzzwords, frankly, that you're associated with. Uh, in terms of scientific areas of interest, in terms of maybe pedigree of the team or things they've been associated with. I think right now it's probably one of the easiest times that I've at least seen to raise money for some of the smaller stage companies. Um, and, you know, ultimately where this will all hinge, I think, is, is data, right? So I think we're looking for surprises, and hopefully it's not surprise it didn't work. It's surprise that there's something meaningful that comes out that looks different. And, again, picking what looks different at the early stage, it, it is really hard to do, right? So I think it then goes back to quality of the science, the data that they're presenting, the rationale for differentiation, credibility of the team, input that we're getting from pharma, from uh, folks such as Andrew, et cetera, around, again, where the marketplace is, how would they perceive something in terms of its differentiation. Uh, and then the reality is it, it will take a long time for these early stage companies to develop their therapies. And so you have to be able to look for not only what's happening in the market in 2018, but what does the market and environment look like two, three, five years down the line. And that's obviously very hard, very hard to do. We also go through these episodic fads. You know, IDO became, you know, raging hot. Sting became raging hot. So part of it is luck. You know, one of the predictions is, will, will we see a lot of other IL-2 mutine deals this year, you know, following Nectar? So some of it is just you're in the right place at the right time, and there's a perceived scarcity of that asset in various portfolios, and it, it all of a sudden becomes a must-have. Okay, so thank you for an engaged discussion from the audience side. I like that very much. So we're closing in on the end of the session. I'd like to ask two more questions, if I may. So the first one, 
goes more in the investment direction and in the business development direction. You know, uh, with the maturation of the space, uh, expectations are shifting a little bit. The landscape is evolving. Has that changed investor sentiment or especially a trend in business development deals that are done uh, in the community? So in other words, as we look into this year being another year of excitement and probably a lot of deals, will that look different than what we've seen before? And, uh, you know, Mark, you can start us off being the BD expert here. One of the things I'm surprised at is how many exploratory collaborations we have. And yet, if two agents from two different companies, and they work, how do you handle the pricing? So I wonder if in 2018, as these combinations mature, if the larger company says, you know what, this combo works, we have to own it, we have to control it, we can't be passive, we have to be active. Because many of these exploratory collaborations have no business terms. They're basically both supplying material. Another challenge is that with a lot of the PD1s and PDL1s on the market, some companies are just buying them and just doing combinations and just paying for the PD1 or the PDL1. And then what happens if those work? Does that force the larger company all of a sudden to say, oh, we have to own it? So I think there's a lot of nuances in terms of these combinations that may drive M&A and BD in 2018. Other thoughts? Investor sentiments? So I'd say across our partnership, it is a little harder to get an IO deal done today than it was four years ago. I think we have a portfolio that's pretty ripe with hope many of the things on Andrew's list. They're already you know, putting into the clinic that those companies were founded five years ago. So it is... A, a full bubble? I don't know exactly how you describe that, but it's a bubble that, you know, there's a lot of substance there. That said, it is still, a, I think, a higher bar than some of the other arenas. So I would expect us to still start several companies in the I.O. space, but, you know, maybe not as frequently as in the past. Um, you know, I think as far as exits are concerned, it's still compelling uh, preclinical data or clinical data that will drive sort of the M&A activity that we've seen across our portfolio. Now, my investors are um, further down the food chain in terms of um, typically investing in the uh, multinational companies. So these assets are somewhat differently positioned than what we're talking about here. Um, but I can tell you that the share price reaction to immuno-oncology data and the magnitude of that, and I'm talking about positive rather than negative data, um, every month it reduces. Um, and to such an extent that when Bristol announced their 227 headline data from a long-awaited trial, the share price went down about 4%, bringing Merck also down 4%, which makes absolutely no sense in a win-lose scenario. So it's just a general reflection of the um, perceived uncertainty in short cycle time, which preoccupies at least the investors in the, in the large multinational farmers. Okay, so thank you for that. So I would like to now, since we're nearing the end of the session, close with a question to all panelists again as we started. Now, we started with the historic look. What was the trend from last year that might carry us forward? So if you now look at uh, what is your favorite thing uh, that you would play some bet on going into uh, this year, 2018, uh, we can close with that. And again, it's all opinions. So Dave, do you want to provide your uh, final bet? Yeah, so I, you know, Taking that question and thinking about it after you, you sent it out, you know, for me, it's, it's less 
about what those outcomes are that we'll drive and more about the initiation of what we're going to do. And so I'd say I'm most excited about the combinations that will start to happen across modalities. So looking at CAR-T, oncolytic viruses, novel biologics in combination with canonical checkpoint inhibition. And I think we're going to see a, a tidal wave of this starting to happen. Um, there's a really a race across Merck and BMS to sort of provide material. It's also, you know, heavily scrutinized and you know, many criteria layered upon how they'll do that and why and where they'll do that. But for me, I think across the landscape, there's going to be some broad empiricism that in the next 18 months, we're going to start to see clinical data coming out of those studies that will really drive the field forward in substantial ways. Uh, we won't be hand-waving, hopefully, about seven patients, but we'll really look at appropriately randomized studies to give us definitive outcomes. I'm hoping we get that killer biomarker. Like in cholesterol, it's LDL. We know the blood pressure. So I'm hoping that beyond TMB, we'll have a way to serially monitor what's going on, and we'll finally be able to do that real patient stratification and enhance the signal and decrease the noise. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested to see, I mean, obviously 17 was the year where there's a number of interesting transformative approvals on the cell-based therapy side. And I think 18, we're going to hopefully now start to see what the commercial uptake look like. And I didn't see, I didn't see the results Gilead posted yesterday. I don't think they broke out um, what the commercial uptake has looked like for their CD19 program. But, you know, between Novartis, Gilead, I think we should start to see whether or not, again, these trailblazing uh, areas of science can truly be a meaningful product. And, again, curious to get Andrew, Andrew's thoughts, but, you know, if you try and make the valuations work, for the amounts that were paid for these therapies, you need to be able to, I think, not only deliver the technology, but have robust uptake and also potentially move into a broader set of uh, indications and obviously starting in the heme malignancies area first and foremost. So I think that will frankly be really instructive to us as we think through, again, all of the follow-on work that we're doing on novel targets and is this going to become a really important modality if, if we're not seeing the commercial ramp or if there's specific bottlenecks that are coming up then it'll be the onus will be on us to, to try and think through how can we address those with our earlier stage investments so out of time so i'll keep my comments short um precision oncology uh baseline ngs sequencing um and uh tissue agnostic approvals for both small molecules and potentially for uh, uh, checkpoint agents. Okay, so I'm uh, seeing a lot of consensus here towards what the next big thing needs to be. And I'm joining you on this by saying, you know, the time of translational medicine in IO has come. And I call translational medicine basically the application of, you know, uh, understanding of biology, biomarkers, and so on, to the conventional clinical investigation and focusing in on the right patient population for the right drug or combination. This has to come, and we have the tools for it, and now that we start applying the tools, uh, we need to make sure that we use them right, validate them, align them, and uh, you know, make this a community effort. And then there will be value for everybody who plays. This is not necessarily a competitive advantage you get by hiding your test from the rest of the world. Uh, you know, we've seen that, and it may not necessarily be the best thing to do going forward. But with that said, I think the fact that we have this group of people here on stage in such an amicable conversation, and we're all competing in one way or the other, uh, I think this is a really good sign that we can work together, and this is where the future lies. 
so and with that, you know, IO360 is the uh, all-around approach, bringing people together. And you see that on this stage, and hopefully you will see it for the rest of the meeting. So thank you for your attention for this panel. The annual Immuno-Oncology 360 Conference bridges clinical, scientific, and business developments in I.O. to provide a genuine 360-degree perspective so as a community we can drive faster advancements to eradicate cancer. For more information about the event, visit www.io360summit.com. Thanks for listening.